Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's a holiday weekend, which means we have a holiday clips episode for you. I thought we'd listen to the first part of my two-part 2019 conversation with Larry Pittman. We'll air the second part next week. Right now, Museo Humex in Mexico City is presenting Lo que se ve, se pregunta, a retrospective of Pittman's work that descends from a 2019 version of the exhibition that originated at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. That show is titled Larry Pittman Declaration of Independence. The exhibition was curated by Connie Butler. The Mexico City presentation was coordinated with Adriana Curry Alamillo. It's on view through February 26, 2023. The show reveals Pittman's engagements with America's history and with issues and subjects that have been corridor history and identity, including landscape, violence, citizenship, belonging, and more. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon and IndieBound still offer it for about $50 to $65. Pittman is one of America's most honored artists. Indeed, this retrospective has traveled to two of North America's three largest cities. That doesn't happen very often. His work is in the collection of virtually every important American art museum. He's received awards from the International Association of Art Critics, the Skowhegan Medal, and he's been granted three National Endowment for the Arts fellowships. Pittman's work has been featured in many important international exhibitions, including Documenta and the Venice Biennale. Larry Pittman, after the break. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Picasso Cut Papers. Devoted to a little-known yet foundational aspect of Pablo Picasso's practice, Picasso Cut Papers spans the artist's full career, with many of the nearly 100 works on display for the first time. Showing a new side of a familiar artist, the exhibition features some of Picasso's most whimsical and intriguing works made on paper and in paper, alongside a select group of sculptures in sheet metal. Picasso Cut Paper is on view at the Hammer Museum through December 31st, 2022. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960. This is the first major museum exhibition to investigate the early work of one of the most celebrated artists of the 20th century. The exhibition tells the overlooked story of Lichtenstein's early career and establishes a deeper understanding of post-war American art. The landmark exhibition features loans from museums and private collections, presenting about 90 works from the artist's fruitful formative years. Many of the paintings, drawings, sculptures, and prints will be on public view for the first time. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, examines the period before the dot, that is, Lichtenstein's signature use of Bende dots in his pop paintings. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960, is co-organized by the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Nasher Sculpture Center presents Matthew Ronay, The Crack, The Swell, An Earth, An Ode, an exhibition that transports you into a surreal world. Brooklyn-based artist Matthew Ronay combines vivid wood sculptures, poetry, biology, and nature into an otherworldly experience. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Gordon Parks, Stokely Carmichael, and Black Power, showcasing the renowned photographer's never-before-seen photographs and footage of Black Power leader Stokely Carmichael for Life magazine. Parks had a prolific career as the first black staff member at Life, and his artistry extended to writing, film, and music. Parks captures the true essence of the African-American experience and the civil rights movement. El Italia calls this presentation, quote, one of the 10 exhibitions not to be missed this fall around the world. On view through January 16th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Gordon Parks. On view through February 19th, 2023, at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Udabarth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time. 
a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Larry Pittman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Nice to see you, Tyler. Welcome to the studio. (laughs) It's always fun to be in studio. Your work includes enough references to the Declaration of Independence that it's the title of of the show at the Hammer, first up, whose idea was the title of the show? Well, I wrestled with the title of the show. Titles are always difficult because you don't want them to be too literal or maybe too didactic or point too much in a direction or insinuate or... I don't know. So I was talking to Roy Dowell. Your husband. My husband of many years. And so as we always do, we talk about each other's work and what we're up to at the end of the day over a glass of scotch. And, you know, it was really difficult. We didn't know what to do. And then it was actually Roy who said, how about Declaration of Independence? And it was just so clear. We didn't even debate it after that. I think it just made so much sense. After we we said, oh my God, that's it. But then we did take time to discuss it and unravel it so that we weren't (laughs) delusional. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in key points in American history, such as the late antebellum period during which the Progressive Republican Party first won the White House in 1860, the Declaration has been rediscovered as a politically potent American document. And of course, especially here in California, where when Olmsted writes his landmark report defining the national park idea at Yosemite, um, it's richly rooted in the Lincoln language of, of the Declaration. At 33 years old or so, you begin referencing the Declaration in paintings right away, including in 85, 86, in a, in a painting called Thanksgiving that's at the Whitney that is not here, and in the three or four works that open the show. Why in 1985, at 33 years old, were you so interested in the Declaration? Well, I guess it it really stems, again, from Roy and I having met in graduate school in our early 20s. So we've been together 46 years, a little bit more, almost 47 years. And we assessed the the landscape, the, the cultural and social landscape, and it didn't look very promising for the type of people we were or the type of relationship we were in. But we were really clear that we wanted to fully integrate ourselves but not assimilate. So that was our, our mantra. And to this day, it's, it's still pretty much solidly our mantra of how do we conduct our lives and, and our social lives, our political lives, and, and our ethical lives as well. So I, I guess... I, at 33, I was also, I, we were all well into our 10th year, easily, a little bit more of our relationship. And we were really aware that, you know, we had gone to CalArts, we had gone to good schools, we were educated, that we found ourselves in this strange personal and social predicament of being privileged second-class citizens. It's this very odd demographic. So... Socially, with great mobility, great personal possibilities, and so forth. But then, in terms of our status as citizens, we were second-class citizens. We had no protection over our relationship, with no foundation, really. And so here was this document that proposes a foundation, a template, a protocol, a choreograph of how Americans are supposed to live, uh, very aspirational in tone. But our personal lives were quite the opposite. So uh, that's why I took it on at that age. You know, I thought, you know, it's not feeling quite the same. And I'm sure I'm not going to take away the narratives of millions and millions of other Americans as well who felt the same way all along and were not privileged and feeling deeply disenfranchised. We were just happened to be, I'm speaking, uh, Tyler, from just the centrality of my personal life and dealing with the idea of both privilege and second-class citizenship. 
There are words from the Declaration of Independence that are both in the paintings from those years, 84, 5, 6, 83, 4, 5, and the gourds, the painted gourds that are in the first full gallery of the Hammer Show. Do you remember what words or passages from the Declaration were particularly interesting or important to you back then? I think it wasn't the individual words, but it was a cri de coeur, a cry of the heart, you know, in a way. It was, I think that's what made it, you know, mine was not an intellectualized response. It was an emotional response based on the emotional proposition that the Declaration makes itself. So it's this kind of cry of the heart, step up, step out, you know, do something that is the kind of the, the imperative voice of the, the emotional imperative voice of the Declaration of Independence. So it's really m much more of its emotional content that I tried to dig out that I responded to. Pursuit of happiness. Of course. I mean, early on, actually, Roy and I had this wonderful little clapboard bungalow in Echo Park that we loved and we made beautiful. But uh, this must have been in the, oh, maybe 1987. And actually, on our mantle, I had painted in beautiful script, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness on the mantle of the... And I think people would walk in in those days and think, what is this? But, you know, it was a, it was a kind of uh, a co-opting reassurance for us. You where, know. where is the mantle now? The mantle is probably still there, but it's probably been painted over a million times. We sold the house many, many years ago. Isn't life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness emotional at its core? It was, I think, so I'm not a Jeffersonian scholar, right? But I think it was meant the phrasing and its prominence in the document was meant to appeal to such at its heart, words he says carefully. But it's not until the mid-19th century that when the Declaration is used by Republicans in anti-slavery politics, helps them emerge as a national party, that it becomes a, a, an address of, of economic stability and particularly inequality. I mean, when Olmsted uses the phrase in 1865, he's using it as a specific address of burgeoning Gilded Age inequality. And I think that's a key pivot point. And I think what's interesting about, I think one of the things that's interesting about the, the way you use the Declaration and the words in the Declaration and point to it in other ways we're about to talk about in that early work is that there's a particular California and Western through line to which the Declaration is important. You know, the Dust Bowl migrants are pursuing happiness very much in the Olmstedian way. There has been a situation in the Midwest of great inequality as a result of human activity and drought, and they are pursuing not just jobs, but happiness. And California has always sold itself from, from the 1870s on as, as that place. And so walking into the show, for you who has always worked in California, it is a continuation of, of a major national narrative and a new to the 1980s way that I think is really interesting. Absolutely. I think that part of it, a part of then maybe other uh, shadings or nuances of the title that I was interested in was also that it, the Declaration of Independence wasn't just about me, but about the work itself, declaring itself Western American, Southern Californian in particular, where there's really only been one chapter, really, a socioeconomic chapter of hypercapitalism, of great prosperity, yeah. and dealing with that meta umbrella as well of, of hypercapitalism, late capitalism, but also suggesting in the title that as much as I revere the Eastern American ancestors of painting, I'm not really their descendant. I don't descend from that genealogical line of painting preoccupations. Another way in which these early paintings address America's national story is that they reference landscape and a lot, probably more than people normally think of your work as addressing landscape, even though once I saw it in those early paintings, I kept finding it throughout the show and realized it was something I hadn't thought enough about. 
Addressing landscape is a pretty audacious move for an American painter in 1985. At that point, landscape was more or less confined to American photography, Judy Fiskin, Bob Adams, Louis Baltz, and so on. Your landscapes pop up in those early works, mostly contained within blue forms that hover above or seem to, air quotes, hang on the compositions behind and around them. They're forms that reference Renaissance painting more than American painting, the kind of blue-tinted dolomites or apennines are there in the air quotes background. All of which, you know, that, that too is super un-American painting in 1985, 86, 87. Why, why did you want to address landscape and in the way that you did? I think the, the, the landscape as a site of beginnings or a site of foundation, the landscape producing life. But in the paintings that you're referencing, I was thinking of the glittering coastline of Copacabana, as well as a Louisiana swamp. Glittery cosmopolitanism and dirty, bacteria-filled, brackish waters. So in looking, when I was making those landscapes that are kind of inside of a blob of very heavy encrusted paint, I was trying to cultivate the simultaneity that they are beautiful and glittering emerald city in its attitude. Mm -hmm. But then upon closer inspection, there's a lot of decay and rotting that's happening within those harbor scenes or landscapes that are being depicted on both the gourds and in those early paintings that we're talking about. I mentioned that they seem often to hang on, hang within the painted compositions. In one way, they read as kind of the beginning of decoration in your work, you know, by, by you know, the 1910s or 20s. Decorative landscape painting was already a, an American cliche. Is that a beginning of decoration in your work? Did you intend it to be? Or am I reading in, and I very well may be, from, from 40 years on? When I was talking earlier, Tyler, about maybe my personal provenance of coming out of Western America, not coming out of the New York school, who are your ancestors, who are not your ancestors, or your conceptual and intellectual lineage, the people you look, look up to. I think that when you're referencing those landscapes as sitting on top of, or being kind of placed on top yeah. of another structure in the paintings, it that I think signals very strongly my love of the applied arts, no pun intended. Really, no pun intended? <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, also that the applied arts, uh, which I revere and I look to always for cues and clues, addresses the adoration of the physical surface. It could be a table, it could be a gourd, or it could be anything. But your principal concern is that you are addressing a physical surface. In those paintings, those landscapes get, they're the exterior world, but then what's hovering somewhat ominously in the background is the inside of the body. Mm. You know, there's, there's one, I think it's called... A New Republic. It's the the landscape, but it's surrounded by the colonic structure. It's both the inside and the outside that's simultaneously pictured. So, in in all of these, we have the the kind of long pan shot, long distance cinematic view of the harbor, the landscape, but then so and that's the exterior world. But in all of these, what it's being attached to is the inside of the, of the body, the kind of viscera of the body. But the viscera of the body, as well as the landscape, is uh, addressed as decoration right from the beginning. In other words, these are decorative components, but they're maybe the insistence always is, for me, is that they are conceptual decorative components. And they're Clodian. They're not. They're not, you know, churchian. They're, no. They're 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 looking back at Europe. Yes. One of one of the things in that I think happens in your work is that ideas pop up on canvas fully formed. We don't 
see you taking three years working through an idea, arriving at a large thing in which you kind of plant a statement flag. Things emerge done, ready to be heard, which uh, is kind of <laughs> intimidating. There's one big exception in the oeuvre, and that is Plymouth Rock from 1985, in which the two bluish landscapes of the sort we've been discussing come together in a 69 form with red bursts behind them. The bluish landscapes, quite quickly after this, peter out, the 69s remain. Am I reading that right? And how did the landscapes end up as 69s? Well, in the chronology of making those paintings that we've been discussing just now, that came at the very end. And I usually find in my studio life that there's always one painting that points to the next body of work. Some, some motif, some sort of preoccupation, some palette concerns, some structural concerns. And that was one of the last paintings in that series that happens to this day. Many times it's the, one of the last paintings that can signal or, or foretell the inception of the next body of work. I think maybe what you're also talking about is just simply maybe addressing every artist works very differently. And I just have never had an identity as a painter. I've always had an identity as an artist. When I speak to my East Coast colleagues who make paintings as well, they are constantly addressing and articulating and polishing and this idea of being a painter and the material. and That's just something I've never had. I just don't have that identity. I think part of it is, is, is having gone to CalArts where it was stressed that you were an artist and that you chose your medium and your format and that was that, as opposed to the other way around. So I've always worked in sets uh, bodies of work. I don't really do sequential painting or evolutionary painting or what I call exploratory painting that you might suggest in this idea of working through an idea and then finally getting somewhere. So I'm not really an exploratory painter that way in, in, the, in the kind of traditional sense of how, how artists who make paintings work out their problems in the making of the work and making of the work in sequences. The landscape forms go away for a while, mostly. I mean, there's some remnants, some kind of mountain forms at the bottom of some paintings, for example. And then they come back in, in the aughts in a way that is less bot-blobular and more kind of postcardy, kind of referencing postcard forms. And then they would go away again. Do you have any idea why landscape... Or I'm sure you probably do. Do you know why landscape comes into the work when it does and then goes away and then sometimes comes back? Well, are you maybe the, are, are you thinking of the painting, Tyler, of the of the big multi-panel one where the toilet is in the center of the that's painting? One of them. Yeah, that's one of them. Um, <laughs> well, I guess you know when the I center and top too. Yes, I, I think there are a couple of them. There's a couple. You know, I've I I've always loved history painting. I don't know if it's possible to make a history painting, but I like the the ambition of it, the aspiration of it. And, you know, so many great, so many great history paintings have to do with big social struggles or chronicling wars or victories or honors or whatever. And I thought, just in a way, conjecturally, could the protagonistic moment of this large, epic, attempted history painting be a large porcelain toilet? But I, but, I, but I thought, how can I do that without being glib? It's not about being glib for me, ever, ever. I'm not that way. But then how do I take something that, is, that we have contact with every day of our lives, physical contact, intimate contact, that is seen as an object in our homes with a, with, that has a type of veneer and perfume of the abject as well, uh, but we allow it to be in our homes and we, we negotiate its abjectness all the time, day in and day out. But then how do I take it away from that hyper-particularized and personal w world 
and place it within a cosmopolitan setting. So if you notice in that painting, there's a, a very artificialized proscenium stage yes. that kind of embraces the toilet, but in the background is the rising, you know, cosmopolitan setting of high-rises and energy city life. You know, it's not rural anymore. It's not... It's fully, in other words, how do, again, how do I... How do I address the private and the public as simultaneous events? As we were discussing the earlier paintings with the landscapes, and I suggested that there's the landscape and then what's being attached to it is the interior of the physical body. So always, I think an ongoing concern is how not to separate the private and the public, but to address those moments where they're inextricably linked or even if they are mutually exclusive ideas away from each other, how do I show it as history of painting as occurring simultaneously? As we continue our, our meandering through the great American themes, the declaration, the pursuit of happiness, landscape, uh, inevitably violence. Violence wasn't just core to America's founding. America has, almost since the beginning, enabled Americans to commit violence against other Americans as a, as a uh, system of state-sponsored enforcements. You start your address of violence almost right after, literally right after this moment where you're addressing landscape. So I imagine you're thinking about, among other things, what makes America America, and you're identifying these core themes? Well, also, I think it coincides quite directly with being a statistic of personal gun violence myself. A home invasion in 1985? Yes. I was shot in the stomach twice. I'm excited that I'm alive and talking to you. <laughs> and that never escapes me every, every day. And I was actually shot uh, on the eve of... I was shot on the eve of July 3rd. No, July 2nd. So it invariably connects with that the, our anniversary as a nation of July 4th. You know, I, I think a couple of things is that I knew it before. I knew it as I was going through that. By you, you mean violence is an American theme? Yeah, no, personally experiencing gun violence. And I continue to see it afterwards that, you know, this is the most violent nation on earth. So um, I guess I'll tell listeners who might disagree, get over it. It's a fact. It's a well-documented It's a well-documented fact. So I think in this case, it, the, the issue of gun violence also becomes autobiographical. I make a distinction between the personal, the emotional, and the autobiographical. In other words, that this is a moment where autobiography almost the leakage is too great. The conceptual and emotional leakage is too great. Can't be contained. How could it not work its way into the work? And it did. Would you have gotten there in the work? I mean, given that you're addressing these major national themes already, you're uh-huh. at this point 10 years out of grad uh-huh. school. You are a mature painter. Would you have gotten to violence without having been on the receiving end of it? Yes, although I think this certainly exacerbated it. Yes, you know, yes, yes. And quickened the pace. I, I think part of it is, is that my acute sense of violence is, comes from two places, is that around 13, I really decided that I was an atheist. And so you basically remove a big chunk of how human beings construct their not their morality, but their moralistic selves. And so, which is different. Uh, one perhaps is, you know, more honorific. The other one is more pompous and inflated and delusional, the moralistic. So if you're an atheist, you, well, you do. You, you put that aside. And so it kind of allowed for a much sharper focus right away on American culture. So it wasn't through the haze of, that type of belief, uh, that type of lens, that type of moralism. 
So I was very aware of that. I remember there's one story that I can't get out of my head. I must have been in eighth grade, and it was the most violent act I had seen to that date. Now, it's not about shooting or body violation, like rape or something like this, but I was so utterly shocked. I remember... I was maybe in seventh or eighth grade, and at that time there was this young woman who sat next to me, and her name was Mary Jo. And uh, I was in Catholic school, and in those days, you know, you women had big teased-up hair in big pom-poms or bouffants, and the nuns were really against it, were very against it. And so she had been chastised in front of the classroom a couple of times, Mary Jo, your hair is really inappropriate. Don't do it again. And she paid no attention to it. And I remember she came into class. The hair was the same. The nun who was at the head of our class got up, grabbed her violently by the hair, dragged her out of the classroom, and we were stunned. And then she came back into the classroom dripping wet with her hair completely deflated by water and made to sit for the rest of the class while we were there. And that was one of the most wrenching, violent acts I had seen a human do to another human. It was of such utter degradation that I was appalled. I was absolutely appalled. And that formed at 12 or 13, such a basis of who I am now. And, you know, it's those kind of moments of trauma and awakening that I think sharpened my atheism, made it pinpoint (laughs) clear, as well as being shot in the stomach was a catalyst for that as well. So other experiences of violence. Yes, and then, you know, it's like we don't, we don't need to have to personally experience something to completely understand its horror. One of the great things about the Hammer installation is that the, 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 there are the, the first couple of spaces build to a single ma- major moment. Your, your, your first kind of masterpiece level painting. And the installation at the Hammer presents it as, bam, a fully, just a very major moment in, in, in painting and in American art. And that's the painting in American Place of 1986 at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. And then, of course, just to describe it for listeners, once, once you get to that painting in the show, you turn left, more or less, and then go through the rest of the show. So it's a, 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 a real building to a thing. And it's a very, very major painting. And it's anchored by, there's, there's a landscape there, there's green grass, there's trees. But what really holds the painting together is this abstracted, very large painting-spanning gun. Guns continue in your work until at least 2013, becoming more and more specific. Abstracted in 86, and by the time we get to the flying carpet paintings in 2013, there are fully representational, very recognizable, don't have to work at it at all guns. Why did the guns get more specific, and were you aware that was happening over the course of a quarter century? Well, I think that the the painting that you're referencing, American Place, was more about the place than the gun. But the gun does span the entire painting. It is true. (laughs) But it is camouflage in a type of modernist, modular sections of paint. But, I mean, if you... It it appears pretty quickly. There's almost a bride strip there by her bachelor's progression through the object. Yes. Yeah. So... I think that we've certainly seen it get worse. And we've seen it move out of unchronicled daily violence that occurs with guns to highly chronicled daily violence of guns. So much so that it, it necessitated a type of literal clarification that happens in the latter work. Uh, the newest work, simply because we are, I think part of the literalization of what the gun looks like comes at a moment for me where I'm extremely worried of empathy fatigue, cultural empathy fatigue, or even content collapse, you know, where 
we're no longer registering the the relationship of cognitive language to an object. They're so far apart. I think content collapse and empathy fatigue are contributing to the rising fascism in America, which is always a those two aspects have to be content collapse and empathy fatigue are at the core, if we study history, at the core of the yeah. prerequisite soil composition for fascism to grow. So we're right at that point. <laughs> we're doing well, in, in, ironically, <laughs> and, uh, with, with, with great anger on my part. So I think that's why things sometimes get overtly, clearly defined, like you said, in the guns and in the flying carpets. In the early work, nooses are suggested as we move, or as you move forward through the work, the nooses become larger and more explicit. Same thing, or is that a little different? Well, I think the noose is such a powerful image in, in America. For me, the noose is actually, maybe this is something I've never clarified. You know, we think of the noose when we think of lynching. Yes, I think that is a resonance that gets attached to the use. But I also felt, in a way, when I proposed the noose, is some other thing that that doesn't get addressed, and that's suicide, and the way of that the, the noose could be a way out as well, mm. not an ending. Not I don't have that in me uh, to clarify that. But the noose also has that, that signification as well as a kind of self-willed, crazy moment of, of getting out. In the AIDS years, there's a suggestion, that might be too strong a word, of a relationship between the shape of a noose and the shape of an orifice, too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I think that, again, the kind of conflation of simultaneity is that I'm always interested in... in addressing visually and linguistically in the work. Quite a number of your paintings that are most directly about violence, whether it's flying carpet paintings or the great post-9-11 untitled number 16 from 2003, feature moons. I haven't solved it. Help. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's one painting that I is one of my favorites, and it's a large vertical painting where it almost looks like an artificial cyclorama is being split down the middle with an enormous sword. I think, I think that's the best of that post-9-11 bunch. I think that's the, the major work of that group, and it's in the uh, show. And then it reveals a moon. Yeah. And maybe the moon that hovers over any city is a, a kind of a traditional temporal perfume of, or atmospheric perfume of of romance, of foreboding, both. And actually that painting comes directly, I'll reveal a little bit of background of that painting, comes directly out of, as we all witness, the stunning, complicated, aestheticized violence of that was pictured on our television screens of the bombing of Baghdad. And the irreconcilability that we all faced of of this uh, conflation, the simultaneity of aesthetics and violence as pictured on our screens, which invariably caused a removal of the implications of what was actually happening and maybe even the beginnings, a side of the beginnings of empathy fatigue. One of the really interesting things in the work is how even as you are addressing the traditional American themes, landscape violence, you are insisting almost from the start on uh, space for the minority in an America historically dominated by uh, stern and cruel majorities. And in your work, that space you create is for the exploration and celebration of queer identity. It's, it's in the work. It's interesting. None of the catalog essays in the book is willing to kind of point to a place where that starts in the work. And I, I, I get it. Connie Butler, who curated the show, vaguely points to the once a noun, now a very series of the late 90s, 
which I think is probably a little too late. Was there a point in your career or pre-career, high school, college, grad school, whenever, when you weren't sure you wanted queerness to be as central to the work as it became? I'm so proud that it's so central to the work. <laughs> yeah, it bounces off the wall. Why I ask? <laughs> so, I mean, I guess I was very I was very lucky. I mean, given my age, I'm going to be 68. I grew up in the 50s. I had the unconditional love of my parents. They must have known I was a very effeminate young boy. I never heard anything negative from them about it. It just was a wonder, you know, never. My father was would never say anything. My mother would neither. It was Larry. This was their Larry. It was really only when I entered the public world, you know, as when you're, I don't know, 13, you're just before, when you start, re you enter the public world at adolescence in a way, you realize, my God, it's not a very nice place. And it was that was the awakening of it. So... My early beginnings in home life were, as Joni Mitchell would have said, unfettered and alive. Uh, so, so you're saying there was never a decision to make about whether or not it would be in the work? Well, at 13? Well, because you start... Actually. No, I work from... I, I guess what it is is I've always worked from complete, complete centrality. I mean, what, what else could I do, really? I mean, I... Like I said, I was never an assimilationist, and I certainly was not given the clues to either be in the closet, be gay, or anything from my parents. It was just simply, this is Larry living out maybe what might have been an eccentric young child, you know, but, I, but those eccentricities were always celebrated. They always became part of family lore, like decorating the breakfast table with jewelry or things like that. Those were never, most fathers would have just been alarmed, but <laughs> I never got that only, message. Only if you ate the jewelry. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's interesting because that's, it's interesting because I hear this all the time from, from well-meaning liberals. That's, is what I call these slight microaggressions. And they'll say, oh, that's great, it's great, Larry, that you've worked from that centrality and that the work is discussed as uh, queer. But it's so much more than that. There's always that thing afterwards. And I always think, okay, here, that's the microaggression, that's that micro. Aggression. Aggression? Well, it's pushing the thing outside the national narrative. And yes, in, in other words, it's work, saying... It's, it's, an a insistent, saying it's an insistent... Your work is yes. throughout an insistence and that so it's part of America. I only hear that from the liberal elite. Always. You know? Because, you know, others would just say, I just am not interested in that work. So, to me, the, the small bubble that I live in is with the liberal elite. And that's always, I just heard it the other day, and it, it caused me great anxiety. I came home and I told Roy about it, and we discussed it. And it's like saying, wait a minute, isn't the centrality of my life called human experience? Why does it have to be, why does it have, what, what is it that prompts someone to say, but it's so much more than that, you know? I'm thinking... In, in the praise of the work, you're diminishing the centrality of the work. Oh, no, you know? yeah. So it still stings to this day. But actually, going back to what you were saying, Tyler, about spaces, I think there's two moments where that queer identity becomes more didactic, and that's where I switch to the interior of the home, the interiors of the rooms, and also where the Orangerie, which is the show within the show, the, the room within the room. I think those are two, two spaces that insist on the polemics, the polemical argument of safe space, and that historically queer people have always found their domiciles to be the safest places. And that's why, you know, there's that old kind of homophobic adage why do homosexuals decorate so much? Well, I have an answer for that. <laughs> There's an answer for it, a real one. 
is you decorate the space you feel the most comfortable with and in. And that you can control the most. And that you can control the most. That's why so many decorators are homosexuals. <laughs> and, and you indeed worked for one for a decade uh, after grad school. But, but it's the placing the home, the home environment or the orangerie. I think those are moments where I construct this kind of ideological space. I'm glad you, you, you brought that up without my having to invent a segue to a 2005 painting called Untitled Number 8, The Dining Room. It's the painting you just referenced. Um, it features a spiky, explosive cactus, a tabletop, a rare tabletop in your work. Uh, it is a leading contender for the most kind of explosive, in-movement, still-life painting of the 21st century. Nothing in it appears to be holding still. There are birds, there are apples, everything appears to be spinning. There's Delftware, maybe export porcelain, everything seeming to move. And it really stands out because while you have made many paintings that are informed by and even represent domestic environments, kind of starting in the early 90s and, and continuing, this is pretty explicitly an, an address of, of the still life classic tabletop. Almost more direct an address of a specific art historical tradition within a single painting than you do anywhere else? Well, I wanted to see how I could make a still life into a tableau vivant. <laughs> I think that was what I, you know, that somehow, you know, it's, it's a vanitas painting as well. You know, it contemplates the simultaneity of life and death, of fulgency and decay. As still lives always have. Yes, as they always have. But it also, I think it, it celebrates and sees as an asset its inherent destabilization, that the destabilization, as you as you're, were describing it, Tyler, that you know things are un, untethered, they're in constant motion, they're unmoored from the surface of the table. They're, they're spin, dangerous with the characters. dangerous. But in a way, it isn't, in other words, I guess... I guess I come back to the... My work is not about critique. <laughs> no. You know, it's, it's not about critique. It, is, it isn't about something. It is something. And that painting is really a little scary, I think. But it also ce celebrates that the unhinging of everything or the destabilization of everything is actually an asset and the... Pre, a, an incredible prerequisite to being alive and thinking, as opposed to everything finding its place or being moored or tethered in meaning, is more problematic for me. That's a really great painting. I, I, I mentioned that your work often references things from interiors, things from still lifes without being interiors and without being still lifes. And one of the best examples of that in the show, one of the things you use most in your work over, over several decades is flowers. Uh, and I want to talk about flowers a little bit, maybe starting with The Making of a Boy, 1952, which is a 2012 painting which challenges traditional notions of masculinity or gender through uh, what we read as a vase and the flowers that extend from it. And, and of course, that painting... How much is that a self-portrait? How much is that an autobiographical statement? How do you want us to think of that painting? Well, right in the middle of that painting on 19, a placard 1952, is... 1952, the year in which you were born. Yes. So, I mean, people don't need to know when I was born, but, you know, I know when I was born. But it's born. a Google away for yes. anyone walking sure. through an exhibition. I guess I wanted, I mean, in a way, I think all through the work... There is a kind of, uh, not destabilization, but a malleability, an insistent malleability of gender construction and sexuality construction. And I just wanted to, at, at that, so I think I might have been maybe 60 when I made that painting. I'm not sure. I'm 68 now. Maybe that was made eight years ago. Yep. I wanted to say, well, a lot of my destabilization, I think all human beings, there's a huge difference between the outside and the inside, and they're irreconcilable. 
And I think I'm no different as a human being. What, what, what our interior world is so volcanic. Every human being has a volcanic interior world. And don't tell me they don't. <laughs> so it was, a, you know, it was a kind of just a, a poetic rumination, really, of at age 60, thinking nothing has been clarified about my interior world, especially about gender construction. And I just wanted to make a painting propose that the making of this boy, this fictitious boy or of a boy, but also of a Larry, was made only with a component of eggs. So if you notice in the painting around the oval cameos are all women, and then there are these nests of eggs that hover in the tree. Multiple nests. So it's just a proposition that there was this boy that whose lineage is purely of ovum, ovum, nothing else. I mean, I know how preposterous that is, but I no, wanted no, to make no, a painting about no, it. No, you don't, because you've used eggs as stand-in, stands as stand-ins for yourself for 20 years in painting. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I also know, it, in other words, it's, it's conjectural. It's a conjectural painting. And I think actually that's at the core of so much of the work. It's like... Can I put a toilet in the middle of a history painting? Can I, you know, do a swampy landscape that's also located in the interior of a body? That's all. Those are big hyperbolic, exaggerated, fictive moves that are deployed to make a point. You know, big exaggerated move is are the carnation-looking flowers. I assume they're carnations that fill the foregrounds of many of the beloved and despised paintings of the late 80s and 90s paintings that are all about same-sex desire and life and uh, that effectively argue that it's been there since the beginning, both of the nation and of other beginnings. I I think those are the first flowers in your work. I, I don't know, but they're certainly close. Traditionally, going back centuries, carnations are a symbol of love and affection. How many Northern European paintings have we seen that are pendant portraits, husband and wife, two people just married, one of them's holding a single carnation between their thumb and forefinger. So uh, first question are, is that how and why you're using carnations there? Well, in the carnation, I mean, I like, you know, you're, you're tracing the, the, the visualization of the carnation in painting historically. But I have a very strong memory growing up in my early youth in Colombia. In um, I don't know if it's all through Latin America, but in Colombia on Mother's Day, mm-hmm. you give your living mother, you wear a carnation, you wear a carnation, I'm sorry. If your mother is alive, you wear a red carnation. If your mother's dead, a white carnation. So it's... Again, insisting on whatever is being proposed in the painting, I, it's out of it still comes out of a a matriarchy, you know. But also the flower, the full bloom, the flower that is in full bloom is always about potentiality and about aspiration. It's at its most radiant, mm. you know. I started raising flowers when I was very little. I still am an avid gardener. And since I can remember, every week I buy fresh flowers for the house. And I always think of that Redon painting. I love Redon. I still love him. I loved him when I was a teenager. I have to interject for a second. In interviews you've done in the last 25 years, you almost always find a way to bring up Odilon Redon. (laughs) I adore him. (laughs) And I guess sometimes I'm at home and we're having our morning coffee and we're always sitting around a table with fresh flowers. And I always say to Roy, I love sitting next to a vase of flowers because it gives me such energy. I know, you know, and that's why I always picture several of the Redon paintings where the person is sitting really close, almost listening into the bouquet of flowers. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of... Um, some sort of trans- transmittal is occurring in those paintings, you know, that we don't know what is going on. But I love that kind of, that the, the flowers that I propose in the work are always about intimacy, you know, or some sort of interior transmittal. 
That's interesting about energy because those carnations in those beloved and despised paintings are the most expressive you, your brushwork ever is in the entire oeuvre. I'm not going to do a ton of art history, art historical excavation as we talk, but there are two contemporaries, near contemporaries, whose relationship with flowers and painting about whom or about which I want to ask. In roughly the same years you're bringing flowers into your work, Carrie James Marshall starts bringing flowers into his work. Often in his work they read very much as a symbol for the same things we've been discussing. I think, but I'm not sure, that Marshall had mostly left L.A. by then. He starts teaching in Chicago a little before that, but I think he was maybe here enough to be here-ish. Is there any relationship between your use of flowers and his use of flowers? Did you guys talk about it? Was there some possible common cultural link? It's just a moment that really stands out. First of all, I absolutely adore Carrie's work. I love it. And it was such an honor to do a walkthrough at MOCA here in Los Angeles of his retrospective. For, for visiting public. For the visiting yeah. public. And I was just taken aback because 300 people showed up. So it became a very ungainly walkthrough. But I also love, I, I mean, we only have gotten to know a little bit. We really are not, we don't really speak that much. We see each other once in a while. I think where we reconnected was when uh, Catherine David, who was the curator of Documenta, put us uh, in the same room together. Um, Documenta 10. And so even though coming from greatly different backgrounds and narratives and experiences, I think that we shared a lot in common. Uh, in just this idea of the adoration of the surface of the painting, mm-hmm. using flowers as commemorative vehicles, flowers to decorate interiors he, at that time, the beautiful painting where he has uh, Martin Luther King and the Kennedy brothers in it. Flower, several several, of them, several right? of them figure prominently in in the settings of his painting. So, I don't know, I, I think that we were... I don't know if we're the same age. I don't know how old he is. I think he's a little younger than I am. But I think that, who knows? We don't know, hmm. you know, what it was. But I think that we were both trying to work from complete centrality and not abjectness. That was the other difference. Exactly. We, were, we were trying to look at our respective lives through wellness and not abjectness. And then... It makes it it's of no surprise that the flower, which is hopeful and beautiful, would pop itself in into the making of the paintings. And as and, and for both of you, really, where the brushwork is most most expressive. Yes, his flowers yeah. drip. Yes, um, and he doesn't yeah. do a lot of. I just love the work. I yeah. love his work. Were Warhol's flower paintings important? No. <laughs> I didn't think so, but, but it would be I, good I, to hear now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I may be in the minority. I'm one, I'm one of those artists that just, I don't warm up to Warhol. I, I know, I just, I know I'm in the minority. I just... Well, but they're not warm. <laughs> I mean, they're not intended to be warm. No, I Warmed know. up too. Although warm. at home I have two beautiful ink drawings of dachshunds yeah. by Warhol from the early 50s that I have. But it's because we always had dachshunds at home. So that's sentimental. There's one other specific painting that includes flowers, or what I read as flowers, that uh, I want to ask about before we move out of flowers. And it's titled Portrait of a Textile, Cotton Islet with Embroidery from, from last year, from 2018. It's a picture that mixes flowers and spades and, and kind of drawn houses, if you will. It reads like a painting of reclaiming, like a reversing of, of bigoted symbols and phrasings, which seems to me not, not so much your thing. Can you explain or talk about why uh, flowers and spades there, uh, why you juxtapose them against each other? 
Well, the painting is composed as a vortex. Strong so, white lines. Yes, yeah, so that's you're looking at a large vertical painting that there's a, an overarching visual structure of a vortex spinning around that ends up in a center. And the painting was, again, my love of simultaneities or the irreconcilability of simultaneities. That's a kind of a... a, a cultural and then linguistic moment or an emotional register that I just absolutely love because it you can't decide which. So the painting is about burying and unearthing. So you can't decide if these houses are being buried, are the flowers being buried, are the flowers being unearthed, or are the houses being unearthed. Or the residents. Or the residents. I mean, that's the way yeah. I thought of it. Again, the painting sets up a complete destabilization. That's the overarching, I think, uh, tempo of the painting. At the same time, in this tempo of the construction of the vortex of this hurricane, you still can't decide, I, I guess, in my mind anyway, and my intention was to say, well, why are, why are these things together on the surface, so abbreviated and blunt in their format? But it was really thinking about the possibility of burying or unearthing and the kind of the resonances that we might associate with both of those activities. So you're not you know, done with flowers. You're finding new ways of... They're inexhaustible. flowers. <laughs> <laughs> they're inexhaustible. Uh, things or mean things. <laughs> I think that's my love of also the still life, you know, that that's... I love still life paintings and uh, you know I mean one of my I, I guess I love the inexhaustibility that Morandi is able to show me of his repertoire of what 12 little vases that he has or cups that he paints over and over and over the again same thing with inexhaustible Redon, the same yes. thing with Latour of yeah. the... so you know for me a, a model of that inexhaustibility is Morandi the way I admire greatly That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.